Well, what an exciting Sunday, and hope it is something as palpable for each of us of um, the vision that God is calling Stonebridge Church Place for a purpose. As you hear these stories, uh, we don't want you to miss it, and we want us to celebrate it because it's our story. And when we talk about Place for a Purpose this Sunday, we want to give an update as we launched a year around some initiatives uh, and areas that we said, this is important. This is the area that God is calling us when we talk about Place for a purpose. And we said those three areas, and you've heard the stories uh, here at Stonebridge, uh, in our neighborhoods, and across Charlotte, uh, that those are areas as as God is leading us towards our vision that we want to focus on these areas. And we said at the beginning of the year that we had some initiatives around those areas. And we talked about at Stonebridge that we wanted to work at an outdoor gathering project. Uh, and the vision continues the story of that Tim read us earlier, that it's not just, hey, we want to make this place a nicer place. It's not a renovation project. It's not saying, hey, let's just make it a nice little area for us. But it's a reshifting of our mentality saying, what does it look like for us to be placed for a purpose in a five-mile radius to our neighbors here? That we don't think about it as just a place that we can gather on Sundays, but it's you leverage and use Monday through Saturday a place where we can be a bridge of grace to our neighbors. As a team has been working and planning that out, uh, they made some temporary uh, shifts so we can create, foster that community, be neighboring to one another, even after the service, I encourage you to stick around. Uh, just fellowshipping. Uh, we have our more uh, festival festivities next week. Uh, but even now that we want to practice those things. And as a team has been meeting, they've been working with a contractor and consultant as they're thinking long-term, you know, holistically, what does that look like? Uh, so they're doing master planning, master site planning, doing core samples as well. And they're going to facilitate some more town halls because we want to work with the congregation. And what does that look like for us uh, as we envision the future and how we can become more and more of a place that here at Stonebridge, it is becomes this place that we're with the community, blessing the community, uh, for our neighbors, and as we shift our facilities towards that direction, you'll get more updates in the coming months. In our neighborhoods, we've talked a lot about what does it look like for our, uh, ourselves to be transformed. One of our elders at a town hall talking about uh, in our neighborhoods, it's the one area you can't really outsource. We can't say, well, the church is going to do it. It's us. You know your neighbors the best, that it's a heart transformation for us. How do we begin to see our neighbors, get to know their stories, then step into loving them, loving our neighbors as ourselves, to live life with them and sharing the good news of Jesus? Uh, there are some great uh, ideas on the Place for a Purpose website you can go check out. Uh, and then I want to really encourage you about the grant proposal element that we raise funds for uh, individual groups as you're starting to see the needs of your neighbors that only you know of because that's where you have been placed, uh, that if there's resources and means that you want to help out, maybe it's a ramp or uh, you want to plan something to gather or foster something in your neighborhood and you just don't have the resources, that there's grants. The church has said, we want to collect some funds to come alongside you and, and the team would love to walk with you and help you through that. So you can go on the Place for a Purpose website uh, and click on that grant proposal and apply for grants to help you. We also have a seminar coming up November 11th through 13th. Dave Runyon, the author of The Art of Neighboring, will be here. Uh, he'll be holding a seminar to help cultivate more of that heart transformation for us. He'll be preaching on the 13th, November 11th through 13th. I encourage you uh, to put that on your calendar. And when we think of Cross Charlotte, that piece that Greg Jackson led us through a prayer, and Brent 
um, through his bus tours, this idea of what does it look like that because we've been placed here in this great city, how we can transform and change the trajectory of this great city towards one of redemption, hope, and restoration. Uh, we've really been working a lot with Hill Charlotte and Greg Jackson in that Hidden Valley community. We've had volunteers come out just a few weeks ago, ha- passing out shoes, uh, partnering with Samaritan's Feet, uh, Hope Totes, so over hundreds and hundreds of kids. We had many of you volunteer. We encourage you to get more and more involved as we raise our awareness. A great next step in that, we have a Bridges Out of Poverty. So often when we talk about uh, working with the under-resources, we just want to go and fix it. Uh, Bridges Out of Poverty is this where we have to learn. What does that mean? How we can be better learners of the people that we're called to serve. Uh, encourage you to put that on your calendar. It's September 30th and October 1st, Friday and Saturday. Uh, we'll be there. It's a time we're going to get to learn together of really stepping into a world that we may not be familiar with, but uh, God is calling us to. There's also a, a Christmas outreach being planned with Hill Charlotte. Uh, put it on. Your, you'll get more information moving forward. And all these are good initiatives that we feel passionate that God is calling us in this first phase of being placed for a purpose. But as I talk further, I want to share and put it in light of um, a bigger focus of what we're talking about here, the vision of our church. So imagine the church. There's a picture from a book called Future Church. It's really, really helpful. But imagine uh, church as a house. I did not draw this house. There's stairs on the outside for some reason, and you've got to jump to get up there. Anyway, uh, it's a picture of a man, the church of the house. And then in, in the church, you think there's this lower room identity, uh, but then you also have an upper room identity, and both are important for a church. And when we talk about a lower room identity, these are not bad things. These are good things. These are important things. As you start learning about a church, you, you focus on a few things. First is the people. A lot of you say, man, I love coming to church because I, I know the people. I love them. I, I, I love seeing their faces. I love seeing their kids. And I love growing our families together. And you fall in love with the people of the church. It's a good thing. Then we talk about the programs. I love the children's ministry. I love the student ministry or the life groups or the outreach ministry. And those are important things. And that's why I love this church. Those are good things. Uh, then we talk about personalities. I really love Pastor Kevin and his stories. Uh, I love Tim and his heart, and I love Dave as he leads us in worship. And you fall in love with the personalities of the leadership, maybe the elders or your ministry children's director or student director, and you, you fall in love with the personalities of the church. Or maybe it's the place. Man, this is so convenient. Life is hectic. It's right on the interstate. I can get here in 15 minutes or less, or maybe even two minutes. Uh, it's just a great location for me to be a part of this church. And I would add one more, I would say projects. And I really love the things that this church is working towards. I love that they're globally minded or locally minded. I love the things that they're doing. And like I said, these are all really good things. But if that's all where we stand, you find those are the same reasons a lot of people will leave a church. Well, the personality change or the program's not the way I like it or uh, maybe the people have shifted and I'm just not close as much. Or maybe the projects isn't really what I'm excited about. And our job as a church is saying those things are important. It helps us move forward, but we got to eventually get to the upper room conversation, which is about purpose. Why are we here and where are we going? So when we say place for a purpose, while we're talking about the things on the lower room, we need to keep our gaze to the upper room. The purpose is to see the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The person in the work of Jesus, 
how he begins to flourish in our lives. As we get draw closer and closer to Jesus, he starts flourishing this good news of grace in our lives. And we can't help because of that. It starts bleeding into. It transforms the way we live our lives, where we live with intentionality towards the people that God has placed in our lives. Place for a purpose is a vision where the gospel flourishes in us so much that it changes the way we think about church. It changes the way we think about our neighbors, and it changes the way we look at the people of our great city. See, Jesus understood that, and he was calling people to himself so they could have life and life to the pool. And the people of the New Testament started grabbing it. They started understanding it. And this is where we get our text today in the book of Romans as Paul is trying to continue that same spirit in his letter to the Roman church. So I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, if you could stand for the reading of God's word, which comes from Romans 13. If you're joining us online as well, if you could stand uh, in your living space to Romans 13, verse 8 through 10. Paul says, through God's word through Paul, says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you. There's a story this, uh, from antiquity, the story of a Roman nobleman in, uh, nobleman in, the, nobleman in the first century uh, where he dies, but he dies with a lot of concealed debt. No one had known. He had concealed it his whole life. Uh, and then he had, he had amassed enormous amount of debt, and he finally died. And at his estate, uh, the story goes that there was an auction to sell a lot of his estate to settle the debt. And Caesar Augustus, the one Caesar Augustus, comes, and he buys the pillow of this deceased man. And when the people around him ask why you would ask, uh, purchase such a pillow, he says, well, this pillow must be particularly conducive to sleep. If its late owner, in spite of all his debts, could sleep on it. It's from a book of uh, anecdotes from ancient history. But if you've ever been in debt or are currently in debt, uh, you know what that feels like, that overwhelming sense, like an avalanche that's supposed to, almost about to fall on you or this dark cloud that's covering you. And I think our personalities begin to come light. Uh, when we're in that situation, we do one of two things, right? One says, I'm just going to ignore it. Hope it goes away. Let's just put it over there. Just live my life, and hopefully it'll take care of itself. Or there's other of you who says, well, we've got to create a plan. There's a 30-point plan. We're going to tackle it each month until we can finally get it done. Now, just a reminder, this is not a financial stewardship sermon, but uh, Paul talks about debt, so we're going to talk about it in light of being a good neighbor. See, what Paul is trying to do is he's tackling the heart issue, and he's connecting it from a physical reality to a spiritual reality. Something about the way we handle our debts, he's tying it directly to a spiritual reality. Paul is trying to connect the dots. See, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, Paul is arguing about the centrality of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's not about what you bring to the table that makes you okay with God. 
He's trying to convince these people that it's not about what you bring. It's not your merits. It's not your works. It's nothing that you can bring, no matter wealth or status. And it's particular to these people. Not even your ethnic identity can bring you into a right relationship with God. And maybe for us, we need to think through the lens, not your church affiliation can make you right with God. Young people, if you say, well, I grew up in church, that's not enough. Paul would say, that's not enough to make you okay with God. The only thing that stands in the gap between you and God is a person in Jesus. Paul is trying to show the centrality of the good news. It is only found in Jesus. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his great love for us that while we were still, sin- still sinners, Christ died for us. A little bit later it says where, where, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Where our debt of sin kept going up, it is only matched and overexceeded, overwhelmed by the grace of God. Then we get to chapter 12, and Paul shifts his argument. He's talking about the gospel, and then he shifts and says, well, this is what it means to live that out. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Because of what Christ is in, your whole life begins to change. It begins to be transformed. And it's not just a spiritual relationship. It's not just about what you do on Sunday. Paul is saying it changes everything about how you live. Jesus changes everything. So he starts tackling all these different areas. And Romans 13 starts talking about submitting to the governments of this world. And he starts talking about paying your taxes. That's in the Bible. Pay your taxes. Once again, not a stewardship sermon, but it says that in the Bible. But then he gets to this part. He says this, let no debt remain outstanding. All the things we're talking about, this debt out there, it says, take care of it. That's part of what it means to live the Christian faith out. But he ties it and said, there's still a debt that you must pay, a debt that you owe to one another. He says this, Continuing the debt to love one another, whoever loves others has filled the law. That you still have an obligation, that you still have something you have to pay back. And at first, if you've read the first 11 chapters, it seems counter uh, to Paul's arguments, right? Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life has freed you from the law of sin and death. You are free, no longer bound, no longer enslaved by what this world has to offer you. You hold no debts because your debts have been paid by Jesus. Jesus has paid it all. But Paul is saying you still have a debt to pay. And no amount of money you can pay, no physical change you can make can settle this debt except your very lives. And he continues on Jesus' teachings. Not just love one another in here, but the law is summed up to love your neighbor as yourself. We have a debt to love our neighbors, that we owe that. To love someone, to love our neighbors. It seems so simple. IBM uh, used to hold this Global Innovation Outlook Conference. And what they would do each year, they would gather kind of the most far-sighted thinkers, uh, the great innovator, creative people around the world, and they would gather them up and create this think tank and said, we need to tackle some issue or some challenge in our world, and could you come up with some creative solutions? And one year they were tackling this $1.8 trillion a year uh, crisis in the healthcare industry, that there was a $1.8 trillion issue, and they said, well, could you guys get in the room and figure out ways we could solve this issue. It would help out a lot. So they gather them in a room and they give them resources and time to think. 
and they come up to the podium, they're presenting, and they were expecting some uh, revolutionary scientific or even technological advance that would change the way we do things. Uh, and they came up and they said, you know, 80% of this could be solved by, um, you know, if you guys could just try to walk a little more, um, eat a little less, drink a little less, try not be stressed. Simple solutions, right? Simple solutions to some great challenges before us. The debt of love is not complicated, but sometimes we do ignore it. Jonathan Edwards, the great revival preacher of the first great awakening in the States, talks about what, how, how do you determine the genuineness of someone's faith? How do you know that someone really is uh, a man or a woman that belongs to Jesus? He says the greatest evidence of someone's faith is the way they love people. That's not new. John, the apostle John understood that, right? Jesus understood that. The people of the New Testament, how we love one another. So the question for us today is really simple. Do you love your neighbors? Picture them in your mind. The person next to you that lives next to you. For a student, maybe it's the kid that sits next to you in your homeroom. Do you love them? Do you love them? Well, some of us may say, well, yeah, of course I love them. I don't, I don't harm my neighbors. I don't steal from them. I don't covet what they have. I'm, I'm pretty neighborly. I'm kind. But that's only looking at the way maybe the world would look at it. When we think about our neighbors, the things I don't do one of the beauties of our faith, our Reformed faith, the doctrines of our faith, the Westminster Confession and Catechisms, uh, they talk about the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments, not in just a prohibitive sense, but we talk about what it, um, the obligations we have as believers, how we should live our lives. And I love how they tackle the Ten Commandments, especially this one about not bearing false witness. It says it's not just ho- holding back things, it's actually living a life that has life flourish in the life of your neighbors. And listen to how they say it. It says, preserving and promoting the good name of our neighbor, a charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, a ready receiving of a good report, and an unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them. I like this last part. Studying and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, and lovely, and of good report in light of our neighbors. That we're studying and practicing and knowing and loving our neighbors. We're stepping forth that when they're going through mourning, that we step in and we sit with them and we weep with them. When they're rejoicing, we rejoice with them. We celebrate with them. And we only know that if we step into their lives and get to know them and build those relationships. Martin Luther, the great 16th century reformer, goes a little further and he talks about this idea of neighboring. He says it this way. He says, a man in his context, he says, a man is placed between God and his neighbor as a medium which receives from above and gives out again below. And it's like a vessel or tube through which the stream of divine blessings must flow without intermission to other people. And you've got to love Luther in this last part. It says, and we have no reason for living on earth 
than to be a help to others. What Luther is saying is that there's this divine blessing that flows from God, and we receive it, but in turn, we must be a conduit, a vessel for it to flow continuously without intermission to our neighbors. And he's addressing the people of the 16th century, but I think for us as well, because so often when we get caught up in enjoying something, we forget about letting it flow beyond us. We just get caught up in us enjoying it ourselves. Yesterday, Aaron and my um, daughter, they went on an activity in the morning, so it was just me and the three boys. And we decided, you know, Saturday morning, uh, we went to Waffle House in the morning, which is, you know, you can have different opinions on that. Uh, But I'll tell you what, Waffle House is hopping on a Saturday morning. Uh, We pulled up thinking, you know, we'll just go get breakfast. We go in, and there's like, it's packed. And there's like a waiting line, which is, you know, it's not, they're not taking names. You just, we have a social contract, you know, where you're supposed to stand, who's next, and it's kind of this order. So I walk in, and uh, there's a family in front of me, and there's me and my kids, and there's other people waiting. And you know when you do, when you're waiting for a table, you start scouting things around. Uh, you start looking at other tables, and you start judging certain people, like, why are they taking a whole table? There's only like one or two of them. They could be sitting at the booth. Uh, or you start looking at certain other tables, like, oh, they look like they're finishing up. Okay, then they're going to get that table, then I'll get that next table. Every minute seems like it's just dragging on, and you see one table that's done but still lingering, like, what are they still doing there? And they should be leaving. Don't they see the line? Shouldn't we get in? <laughs> well, we finally got our table. We sit down. We get our waffles and eggs and stuff. We start eating. But you know what I don't think about when I'm sitting there eating? I don't really think about the other people that are waiting in line. I'm just kind of enjoying uh, the food with my family. Uh, You know, as we're leaving, the line had tripled. I didn't even notice. Uh, We paid and left. Because that's our nature, right? When we're enjoying something, we forget about those who are still waiting, who haven't received. See, it's our natural tendency. But what Luther is saying is that we are the means, as we receive the divine blessing of God, it's not right. Our very purpose why we're here is to flow it out to our neighbors, to those who have not seen and heard the good news of Jesus, who have not seen the face of our Savior. For us to hoard it is wrong. For us to be a conduit is our calling, our purpose, and our vision. Luther paints a picture. Our vital role is not just to be caught up in the divine blessing, but we become the means in which the divine blessing flows to our neighbors. He goes, as far, he goes as far as to say, what's the point of our existence on earth if we don't do that? Place for a purpose is a vision that calls us to see the gospel, the good news of Jesus, flourishing in our life, overwhelmingly so. Let us receive that divine blessing in a way that crumbles us, humbles us, transforms us, but changes and calls us to live in a life intentionally towards the people here at Stonebridge in our neighborhoods and across our great Charlotte and beyond. Not so that we can build ourselves up, but for the sake of continuing the depth of love to one another. God, in his sovereign will, has decided the means in which he wants to bring this kingdom, his kingdom that we all dream and hope for, this kingdom where everything is made right, this kingdom where there's goodness and no more tears, this kingdom that God says, the means in which I want to communicate this kingdom is through you. The way he wants to reach your neighborhood, the way he wants to transform your neighborhood, the way, the means he wants to transform our city is through you. If we become the vessel, the conduit of that blessing, 
that he has placed you for a purpose. We're lifting our gaze from what we do here just on Sundays. Vitally important. We're going to continue to have great preaching, great programs, great projects, great personalities. We'll keep doing that. <laughs> Not me, but the other ones. But let's lift our eyes a little bit higher to the purpose that he has called us. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're leaning into, um, not just for this next year, but for the rest of our days until his kingdom is made complete. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the glory of your name, the great majesty of who you are, God, that you have lifted us up to see your glory. Father, not just in this generation, but from generations before, all singing of the glory of your name, Lord, the privilege we have to shout your name, not because of our own merits or works, but only by the work of your son, Jesus Christ, and by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you have called us to be a son and daughter so we can sing with boldness and bravery and gladness and humility and joy that we can be part of the redemptive work, the redemptive work of making this place more and more like the way it was always meant to be. Father, let it call us, let it shape us, let it change us, and let it fall on our knees to pray for our neighbors and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.